looking out for your client's best interest is also looking out for your own best interest because why else should they hire you? I try to do good work and bring value to whatever situation I come into so I'll get hired again and continue to get to do what I love doing. So I guess the balance is being aware that you need to make yourself valuable to the client by doing things for them they can't do for themselves, by solving problems that they have or providing something that they need. And in so doing, I'm able to build a business at the same time. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Jeff Madoff is a friend of mine. He teaches a class in living a creative life at Parsons, right around the corner from me in New York City. I've sat in on his classes for years. I don't need more formal education. I have plenty of that. Listen to the guests that he's interviewed. Ralph Lauren, Halston, Brooke Astor, Liza Minnelli, Donna Karen, Martha Graham, Tom Brokaw, Tony Bennett, Tyra Banks, Heidi Klum, Giselle. Here's some names of, of models I don't know. Adriana Lima, Candice Swanepoel, Miranda Kerr, Carly Kloss, Dutzen Kraus, Alessandra Ambrosio, Justin Bieber, Usher, Black Eyed Peas, Maroon 5, Katy Perry, Holly Berry, Selma Hayek, Ray Kurzweil, Sanford Weil, Tim Ferriss, Peter Diamandis, a lot of really big names. Despite all of these stars, what I like about his course is that you know how that no matter how productive you feel, when you go on a vacation, things start falling into place and you start realizing your priorities that get lost in the shuffle of regular life. I get that from his class in an hour or two. It always seems to put things in perspective and I start realizing what's important to work on. And I wanted to bring that way of creating culture and attracting people to this podcast. In his course, I learn about meeting people, I learn about business, I learn about leadership. And this episode is about leadership, also the environment, but more on the leadership side, especially starting without connections or resources. If you've heard that 80% of success is showing up, Jeff shows how it happens. He lives it. You're not going to hear the big names that I just mentioned in the podcast, but you'll hear some big names right from the start. As an aside, remember his name because he's been recording all of these interviews and eventually it's going to become a video log or a blog or something like that to be made available for everyone. And I recommend watching it when it comes out. In any case, let's listen to Jeff now. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Jeffrey Madoff. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So, Actually, I'm going to start by saying how you and I know each other, mainly. I mean, we met through mutual friends, but one of the big things is that I sit in on your class that you teach, and to me, there's a big difference in you seem like a very unassuming, regular person, and you teach this class on creativity with amazing guests, which is what brings me in. I'm not a student in your class. I just sit in on it, and you've worked with Victoria's Secret. You work with not just Ralph Lauren, Lauren, the institution, but with a person, and for me, one of the things that if people who listen to my podcast enough or my recordings enough, Martha Graham has been like a, a huge influence on me. And you did the Martha Graham video when she, when she died, I believe, for yeah. New York Times. How does someone as, as unassuming as you seem to me get so well connected? People dream of being like that. Is there a story behind all this? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so unassuming there's no story behind it. Were you always this way? Do I mean... We were just talking about how you grew up in Ohio. You went to uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I don't think of these places as being the center of jet-setting society and so forth. But I feel like the people in your life are. You know, I, I actually don't know how to answer that because so many people in so many pursuits end up meeting people like you and I met. And I was fortunate enough to meet people or be able to get my work in front of people. So, for instance, when I started my own company... My first client was Halston, who was a legendary American designer. Mm -hmm. And I got that account by calling him 
And I called him up and through some quirk got him on the phone. And at that time, video was very, very new. And I proposed to him that we shoot a video of his fashion show. I said, because you've never seen it. Where are you during your fashion shows, Halston? So I'm backstage. I said, so you never hear it. So you just, you never see it. So you have to rely on people secondhand telling you. People who might be afraid for their job, people who want to please you, people whatever. But you don't get to see the show itself. And he said, well, that's right. And I said, so I'm going to give you that opportunity. You can see your show yourself. He was enough of a visionary, smart man, that he saw the value in that. Well, one of the people that came to his show every time and a person who he supported financially in terms of the efforts that they put into the arts was Martha Graham. Uh So Martha Graham attended Halston's fashion shows. I met her through Halston. She saw the work that I did for him, which led to me working with Martha. So I did a documentary about her. And when Halston died... I worked with her as part of a tribute to Halston that was done at Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. And I did that with Liza Minnelli, who initiated the project. And then when Martha died, I was approached by their company because I had worked with them before. They liked what I did. And I ended up doing the a documentary about her that was shown at City Center to honor her after she died. Like a eulogy. And it was more, honor, you know, a celebration of her work, really, and a celebration of who she was. And then, ironically, a few years later, when she would have turned 100, I did another piece on her that was used as a fundraiser for the company. So, you know, you meet people just like you and I did through somebody else. And I met the person that introduced us, Tim Francis, through somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess when you're adults and you play telephone, some of the connections that you make along the way end up manifesting into something else or lead you into something else. So I never thought about, for instance, how can I get to this literally 20th century icon of creativity and modern, who created the art form of modern dance, which was Martha Graham, Mm -hmm. literally created the art form. Mm -hmm. I never calculated how could I get to her, what could I do? It happened. You know, and so sometimes it's having your antenna up so that you recognize opportunity. And I felt incredibly fortunate because how often you get to meet somebody who creates a totally unique art form and then get to work with them on top of that. So that was really cool. Really cool. So I heard at the beginning of this was you talking to Halston, you you had the gumption to just call. And so it sounds like it was kind of, it was gumption on your part to call. It was luck that you happened to get him, that he would not just stay behind secretaries or something like that. But there was something that was, you had a sensitivity to a need of his. Maybe it was an industry-wide thing that no one, maybe no one saw their their shows from, from the front. Was that something you thought of ahead of time or was it just something like through talking to him that it came up? No, you know, if you're trying to sell somebody something and I was trying to sell him my video services, You know, when you're trying to sell anything, you're trying to fulfill a need. Otherwise, why should they buy it? Mm -hmm. And I thought about the fact that designers are always backstage during their shows. Mm -hmm. So they never actually see their own shows. So, you know, they don't see how the clothing moves on the models. They don't see how the audience reacts. They don't see any of that. They'll hear applause from the back and then they walk out and they get applause, but they don't really know. And then it's their staff that fills them in on what happened. And they're, and they're biased, the staff. I, I think so, yeah. And, you know, oftentimes for good reason, they're biased. So I thought, well, this is a real need. And at that time, there weren't companies out there videotaping fashion shows. Mm-hmm. So I think it was also a, a tribute to Halston's innate sense of curiosity and savvy about marketing that he was one of the first people to do that. So something that hopefully regular listeners of the show will pick up on is that, and the more effective leaders are, the more that I find that their focus is on the other person. You were talking about in the context, if you want to sell something, you have to fulfill a need. And I think a lot of people, they think they associate leadership with what I can do. And I think the the effective leaders that I talk to, it's always about how can I serve others? How can I help others? How can I figure out what other people need and what other people want? Did I capture that right? Is that how you felt? Well, I can't say that it was altruistic. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, wow, how can I solve the problems that he has? Uh, I had a specific solution. That solution was video and whatever my talents are as a director and, and producing the videos for him. Uh, I felt it did solve a problem that he had and that there was a valid purpose for it because there was something else that that did too. I remember at the time, nobody's shows were videotaped. They were photographed, but not videotaped. So all of a sudden, there was a whole new mechanism for marketing. You could use videos in stores. You could use videos in the showroom so that the people coming in and waiting for the buying appointments could review the show in motion, a lot more dynamic and interesting. Fashion was meant to be seen moving, you know, hold still wearing the clothes. So I felt like this is a whole new medium that is well-suited to fashion, that solves a problem designers didn't know they had. (laughs) You know, they didn't think about, geez, I never see the show from out front because no designers ever saw the show from out front. So this opened up a door of perception for them that didn't exist before. And then there were other things from a business point of view that I suggested can amortize the costs of the video. It's not just that you get to review it with your sales staff and design staff afterwards. You can use it as a tool selling-wise when buyers come into the showroom, and you can use it as a marketing tool in stores. So there was a lot of business reason, you know, to do it. Uh, you know, I often think it, you know, when, when people talk in business about, you know, well, it's, I'm there to help, I'm there to help. Well, you're primarily there to help yourself, otherwise you don't stay in business. You need to generate the revenue to stay in business. But I think that you have to provide a necessary product or service in order to do that. And in a situation like I was in, video was so new, people didn't even know how to use it. So we also had to educate them as to how and why this had value to them. People don't know this, but before we started recording, I, was, I said how I wanted to talk. I, I wanted to kind of get a hook at the beginning of talking about you and Victoria Secret and, and Ralph Lauren and Martha Graham. And now I'm looking back. The reason is that when you talk, you're connected with all these people, but I've never heard you talk about these things. Like I, I know a lot of people who are connected and they're constantly dropping names. And I think they're kind of promoting themselves. And I've never heard you do anything like that. It's all about, right now you're talking about your big break or how you got started. And you're talking about there's a need to be solved. They don't know how to wear of it. I presume you learned to craft well enough that you could do it effectively. And you're, you're very matter of fact. It's, I think that, I don't know how to get this balance because you're saying, yeah, of course you have to do for yourself, but you're also talking very much about others. And I think there's a balance that a lot of people struggle with that I think you've, you're, you've hit it very comfortably for yourself of how much do you focus on your, helping yourself in the context of you're helping others as well. Am I right that there's a balance that you've found? And if so, did it take you time to find it? Or was it always there? Or is it, am I looking at a way that you, you don't even look at it? Yeah, if I've achieved a balance, I'm not quite sure what I'm balancing. And uh, Paul McCartney said to me, don't drop names. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's one thing you, you in a very articulate and inquisitive way, asking an incisive question, really what you said is, and which is unfortunately true, is, Jeff, you're a crappy self-promoter. <laughs> and, and I am. Uh, you know, I'm not good at, uh, I'm very good at pitch meetings. I'm very good at all that stuff, but I'm not good at, you know, touting myself in a certain way. Hopefully my work speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Hopefully people who refer me to others speak well of me, but uh, in terms of finding a balance, that's no conscious effort as to how, what I place my thumb on the scale in, in either direction. My parents were both independent business people. My mom and dad had their own business. Uh, My sister has her own business. And I think that it is looking out for your client's best interest is also looking out for your own best interest because why else should they hire you? So I try to do good work and bring value to whatever situation I come into so I'll get hired again, you know, and continue to get to do what I love doing. So I guess the balance is being aware that you need to make yourself valuable to the client by doing things for them they can't do for themselves, by solving problems that they have or providing something that they need. 
And in so doing, I'm able to build a business at the same time. So when your role is to be a producer or a director, are you a producer or director for The Runaway Show? Well, I was for Halston's, yes. So I feel like then, I feel like that's in such a leadership role. I guess the client is still the person is, is, is Halston. So you're still serving someone else. Well, yeah. I mean, when you have a client, you're always serving your client. You know, in some of these companies, Ralph Lauren, when I started working with him many years ago, was a much smaller company. Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate to, on a couple of levels, I've been fortunate that I've worked directly with Ralph and that, you know, he is someone who I've also learned from because he built a very, very valuable global brand. Mm -hmm. And so to being from the early days and to observe how that was done was fascinating. Halston built a very viable brand. His story took a very different trajectory, but still fascinating. And so when I worked with people like that, I worked with Estee Lauder. You know, so when I, I was four years old, but, but you know, when I worked with these companies that they weren't aware at that time because it wasn't part of the vernacular. I'm building a brand. You know, they were building a business. And, you know, the brand aspect, in a sense, was hindsight and kind of an academic lens to view what the business was and how it became what it became. And uh, so I was very lucky because I not only was able to bring value to them, but I was also able to learn and observe from a very advantageous perch. And yeah. that was cool. Branding is like a big thing in, in like American culture today. And you got to see, you were there to see the development of an American way of, I don't know if that's America. I mean, in America, certainly way of looking at things of, of brands coming to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess there were brands before Sears and things like that, that were probably not, but not like today. No, I mean, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at, at brands, I think one of the most vivid examples was Walt Disney mm -hmm. because Walt Disney, I mean, think of how audacious it is to have first Disneyland uh -huh. <laughs> and then Disney World, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's kind of an audacious vision. Yeah. And what he did was literally create a fantasy world that people were immersed in. You know, they didn't talk about immersive entertainment then, but that's kind of what an amusement park is, Yeah, you know? And, and Disney added to that television, which he used to market his brand, which was very smart. Movie production, which was, again, very smart and another fantasy that you bring people into. So, you know, looking at him and looking at what he did, that was probably one of the, best examples of building a brand, although I'm sure that he never talked about it like that. He was building a business and he was putting his vision out there. His vision, I, it's remarkable how he taps into something that seems very much there, princesses and things like that. It's like people want to be, like he's tapping into something that's really, I think, deep, like the iconography. The Well, he's, what he's tapped into is, first of all, he didn't write any of the stories. He appropriated children's stories. So Timeless. Yeah, yes. so whether it was Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, uh, you know, those were children's stories that Disney appropriated. He didn't write them. And oftentimes sanitized quite a bit, yeah. you know. But the point is that he, you know, the Disney brand is wholesome family entertainment. And that's what he did. And he created that experience, not just on the screen. Remember, he started with animated films with Mickey Mouse. So, you know, to then extrapolate from just that world being on the screen to literally it being however many hundreds or thousands of acres Disneyland is, mm -hmm. you know, to create that immersive fantasy world, one of them called fantasy land. In fact, they're all fantasy land. You know, there was, you know, none of them aren't fantasy land. But it was kind of a, an audacious and brilliant vision to do so. So I want to switch tack a little bit here because I'm thinking about the course that you teach that I sit on. The name of the course is Living, it's, I think of Creative Life. What's the, name, the official name? It's Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And did you propose the course? Did they come to, this is at the new school, at Parsons, the new school for design? Right. And did they come to you? Did you go to them? 
What happened was, is I had been a guest lecturer there. I would lecture once a semester for a professor there who had invited me in, Dean Stadel. And so after I had been doing that for probably four years, five years, once a semester, he said, you know, there's, they're looking to have another course here, which I think your lecture would be great if you could turn it into a course. And I said to him, you know, my schedule is such that I can get a phone call and be out of town or out of the country or in production. And he said, well, why don't you try it for a third of a semester? You know, teach four courses. Uh, I mean, four, four classes. Yeah. yeah. And just, you know, see how that works for you. What I didn't know is that there were three of us doing that and we were the final choices for the getting an adjunct faculty position. So the response from the students was very strong. They asked me if I would develop the course. I explained my limitations in terms of I can't turn down productions, got to do this. And they said, well, we'll work with you. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do this. I think this starts my either 10th or 11th year of teaching the class. I think 11th. And it's been great and I love it. And it's always new because I'm constantly learning along with the students. And because Parsons is a good platform and really also because I've been able to attract such good people that it's now every semester, I've got a great reason to go to people who I think are doing really interesting things that the students could learn from and uh, invite them into the class and they do it. So, yeah, you get really great people. I, I sit in in your class as, you know, I'm an adult. It's, it's students, it's undergrads. And, but I come in and even when it's a dud, I still, well, to me, I mean, they're never duds, but even if it's something that doesn't really resonate with me, I still find the perspective that you bring is, I think most college students, I don't think they recognize what they're getting. I think, I, mean, I hope they do. But I, when I was in college, I wouldn't have seen the val- I would not have registered the value of what they're getting. I'm sure years from now, they're going to look back and see what it means to see someone who the, the people who have been so successful. So first, what are you doing in the course? I mean, I know that you're teaching students, but what do you bring to them that no one else could bring? What, like what, what motivates you? What's your passion in teaching this? Well, I, I don't know that I bring I, I wouldn't be so presumptuous to say that I'm bringing something, something that no one else could bring. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was my idea to bring this. <laughs> so, it, so I'm in the fortunate position of doing it. I look at who really interested me. Uh, for instance, Bill Moyers, Ted Koppel, people who I think I have tremendous respect for. I admire their intelligence, the amount of research they do and the subjects that they deal with. And, you know, when I would watch Bill Moyers and I think, wow, this guy is making a living talking to really interesting people about what they do. So he is learning. He's sharing that knowledge with his audience. And there's just constant personal growth and knowledge going on in that process. That is cool. So now I hadn't thought about this until recently. In my class, I'm kind of doing what he did and does. And I still have tremendous respect for him. And so I get to these people, they agree to do the class. I spend a lot of time researching them. If they're going to give me their time and the students their time and share their knowledge, I want to show them the respect that I really know about the knowledge they're sharing. I know about them, their lives, their work, what they're doing. So I spend a lot of time researching my guests so that I can showcase those things that they do and why they're there, but also engage them. Because I think that the best interviews are not interviews. I think they're conversations. And hopefully the conversations are interesting enough that the audience there likes listening to them. And in the class, as you know, uh, so open it up to questions from the audience so that they can engage too. What I heard is that, so you thought of the people that you really liked, Bill Moyers and so forth, Ted Koppel, and you thought, you, I think partly you bring to the students what they, what you got from them, but you're also partly taking on that role yourself. So you're becoming that and you're bringing to them what was valuable to you. 
in the process, you are becoming also valuable to them. And I think you're bringing to them something that they, in an academic environment, that's not what most academic, most academic stuff is like, write a paper and tell me what you know, what, you know, here's what to know, tell me that you got it. And this is more of showing them what life can be or how you can do things that other people wouldn't by you doing it yourself. Am I getting, getting that right? Yeah, well, I think what it is to me is that an incredibly important aspect of life, not just college, but life, is critical thinking. And part of critical thinking is context. There's a great book, short book, great book by George S. Tro called The Context of No Context. And it's absolutely brilliant. Highly recommend that for all of your people listening. So I'll get the link and put that on. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's a brilliant work. And I think that it's important in terms, of the, in terms of the knowledge to think and question, place things in context so that you understand them. So a quick example of what I mean. Value, that's a thing we talk about a lot. And so I showed them a bottle of water, the students a bottle of water. I said, so, well, how much is this worth? I said, well, you get it at the deli for a dollar. I said, okay, so do we agree that it's worth a dollar? I said, yeah, it's worth a dollar. And I said, okay, now I'm going to change the context. You're no longer in the class in New York City with the deli right outside the door. You're in the middle of the desert. And I have that one bottle of water. And you don't get that water, you die. How much is it worth now? Would you pay $1,000 for it? pay $5,000? Would you pay everything you had if that was the last bottle of water and that was what was keeping you from dying? So the value greatly increased due to the context of the situation. So one of the students, and it was great, uh, brought up the idea of, well, what if you were in the desert? That's great. And so that led to a whole other discussion. So then you get into conversations about scarcity. You get into a conversation about what is value and how does that relate to scarcity, to demand, to all of these things. And a conversation ensues where the students are thinking about that simple bottle of water that they never thought about before, that they can get for a dollar, that all of a sudden it's got a whole new meaning. Well, if I'm able to ignite that kind of discussion... I feel I'm doing a good job as a teacher Mm -hmm. because I'm getting them to think about things they hadn't thought about before in a way they hadn't thought about them before. And I also invite the students to challenge me in anything I say because that's not only to keep me more nimble, I think that it's just value. Just because I happen to be the oldest one in the room and up there in front of the class doesn't mean I know everything. So I always value getting that kind of feedback because that, again, is context. It's the context of the classroom. And these minds, which are in a different place than my mind, and they're in different places from each other. So that exchange of ideas and critical thinking, I think, is really valuable. It's interesting that what, you, what you're talking about is, is a separate aspect from bringing it to them. Or is it separate? when Because I think of like, uh, who are some talks that uh, guests you've had, National Geographic photographers, writers, head writers, top writers for the New York Times, uh, Jeff Tweedy, who reports to Sean Combs. Uh, Michael Arad, who designed a 9-11 memorial. And these people are not necessarily, like, you don't talk to them about value and context, not in those words. Are, are there two separate parts of the class of, of getting students to think and talk and, and consider things in new ways, and separately also bringing these people who are successful and have, have creative careers or is there something tying them together that I, that I'm, I haven't seen, seen yet? Well, there's a, a couple of things. Sometimes the discussion leads to that kind of of critical thought going on. When Michael Arad talked about the 9/11 memorial and winning the competition to design that, you know what everybody thinks about, rightly so, is the tragedy that took so many lives on that date. But there's another side to that, and the other side to that is. Now there was an opportunity for the building of many office buildings and apartments and all this stuff to then revitalize lower Manhattan. So there was a, not just what the public thought about in terms of the tragedy. Then there became the opportunity as a result of that tragedy and the competition for those millions of square feet of office space and living space 
the tax incentives to get people who were afraid to move down there to move down there, and all of these things. So it became a really interesting discussion that was incredibly engaging to the people in the room because nobody had thought about that kind of thing before. Mm-hmm. So it's just, hopefully, I am, I'm bringing about the opportunity to view things in a different way. And so that was really interesting. And then there's the recitation part of the class, which is after my guest lecturer, then there is a uh, person, or person, it's me, <laughs> uh, after the lecture, that person leaves, then we have discussion about that, about what was discussed, or another topic in the recitation afterwards. But I try to bring the same qualities to all of it, which is that critical thinking and that kind of animated discussion that to all that, because I think that's what, you know, keeps it interesting. I don't think there's, I don't think there are any boring topics, but I think there's lots of boring teachers. Do I conclude right that I think that the type of critical thinking and to be able to think about values and be able to talk about these things is in everything. And so you, you bring in these people who have led creative careers and you bring in what is critically important that other boring professors might not bring in and you bring into that context. But you wouldn't teach if you didn't bring those things in. Well, I'll put it in a, in a business context. I was uh, talking to Ralph Lauren and I said, so, you know, you've got, you know, one of his gifts is that his instincts and he's had his fingers on the pulse of the consumers for decades. And I said to him, how do you know what people want? How do you know your consumer so well? Yeah. And he said, I know what my consumers want because I am the consumer. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting because he is his own compass for what he does and uh, the many different aspects of his lifestyle. So he has an apartment in the city, but he has a ranch in Montana, you know, or wherever it is. (laughs) You know, the point is he's got his cowboy lifestyle. He's got his slick city lifestyle. He's got his manor in Bedford. And so all these different aspects that he has different brands around. They're all him. That's right. That's right. And his, and Interestingly, his inspiration is the movies, and these Which are the different characters. Yeah, and these are the different characters. And so, did you know that before? As you're saying it, it seems I'm sorry to interrupt, but as you're saying it, I'm thinking of like every picture that I can think of of Ralph Lauren's stuff. It like fits into what you just said, right? Does everyone know that but me, or does is it suddenly it all becomes clear that he's got a life and he's he's giving us his life, and it all ties together. I mean, it does all tie together, but I would say instead of him giving us his life, he has created a style of life and his success has enabled him to live out those different worlds, Uh. you know, because those worlds don't come cheap, (laughs) you know, Uh, but he's been very successful and he's able to live out those worlds in a very full way, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I was wondering, because I mean, I live in the village, so there's one, there's a Ralph Lauren near me on Bleecker Street that I don't, I'm not sure if it's moved, but... uh... It has more of like the, that one's more like the movie one. And then there's another one on University Place, and that's like the Western one. And I never knew why they were the way they were. So it's, it's his aspirations that his brand and his, his business success has enabled him to put out there. And they resonate with people because he is his own consumer. Uh, sorry, I'm re- this is really cool to me to like find out what's the, the human story behind what I see. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, you know, I too find that really interesting as I delve deeper into it. I mean, because I've been working with him for so long, these are things that I've seen evolve. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's fascinating. And I think that's been why, one of the reasons why he's had the longevity that he's had. It's very hard for anybody in a creative field to stay relevant. That's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge for actors. It's a huge challenge for writers, for designers, all kinds, because there's always younger people coming up with different ideas, new ideas, what's going to capture the imagination of the people, all of that. So that becomes another thing in creative fields is relevance. And how do you stay relevant? Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act 
not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So, yeah, I, I pause. I interrupted you to talk about Ralph Lauren, but I was, I was fascinated by that. I'm going to change topics a little bit. The podcast is Leadership in the Environment. I think, to my mind, we've been talking a lot about leadership and just touching on authenticity and genuineness, I think there. Of, I think I can't help but comment that I feel like he was, he's authentically and genuinely expressing himself. And I think that resonates with people too. But the other part is environment. And we haven't really talked about that. In fact, you're in my relationship over the years now, I guess we haven't really talked about that that much. It's a big passion of mine. Is the environment something, nature and the environment and stuff like that, is that something that is a big thing for you? Or do you think much about that? I mean, you know about the topic of the podcast. I think a lot about the environment because I have kids. Mm-hmm. My son, Jake, is his degree from the Gallatin School. This is a curriculum that he developed. It was comprehensive environmentalism. The environment is something that we all share. And I am deeply frustrated by the fact that the environment has become a political issue when we all drink the water, we all breathe the air, we all produce waste, uh, we all are doing things that we could be doing better, that could make the planet better, and that when there are people that deny science, when there are people that have no regard for others and as a result create tremendous amounts of unnecessary waste, all of those things really bother me because it shouldn't be a political issue. This is something that, you know, we all breathe that air. And so I think it is something that I, that I believe in, care about. One of the great quotes that I would love to take credit for, but I didn't say it, was Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was in a discussion with someone who was a uh, denier of climate change. Mm -hmm. And he spoke all of the things we've all heard if you've listened to those discussions, weather always goes in cycles and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're we're doing this conversation on, was it September 14th? Right now? Yeah. September 14th, yeah. Uh, September 14th, 2017. Just recently had a tremendous flooding in Houston, Texas from uh, Hurricane Harvey. My daughter, Audrey, was in St. Martin's during the hurricane and actually worked with the, uh, her and her three friends worked with the Dutch Caribbean Coast Guard in helping to coordinate some relief efforts down there. The islands in the Caribbean were decimated. Florida suffered tremendous amounts of damage. So this is Irma also. That's Irma. Backing up, Irma was Jose that caused some damage into the Virgin Islands and so on. So the point is that these are the ferocity and frequency of these weather systems is something that climate scientists have been talking about for years. And it's undeniable. Neil deGrasse Tyson, when he was in this discussion said to somebody, and this was before these hurricanes, he said, you know, the wonderful thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. And I love that quote because it's so true. And I think that, you know, I understand why, you know, some people deny it just because they're stupid. Other people deny it because they don't want government interference and regulations that they think affects business somehow. But if we're all in a world that is horribly polluted and horribly damaged by our lack of attention to the environment, we all lose. And that's unfortunate. And unfortunately, we have uh, an administration that is fostering that kind of ignorance and that kind of lack of priority that protects all Americans and all people all over the world. So this is I'm surprised we haven't talked about this before, just because, I mean, you talked about your son, you talked about your daughter, you talked about Florida and Houston, the nation, the world. Yeah, and the islands in the Caribbean that were so horribly decimated. And those, by the way, and this is one of the things my daughter said to me, you know, she went out on a C-130 rescue plane. There were other Americans who were being evacuated at that time. But for instance, the people who were part of the Dutch Caribbean Coast Guard, who she and her friends worked with, their homes were destroyed. 
they can't get on a plane and evacuate. They have no place to go. The tourist industry, which supports those islands, isn't going to be there for a while until mm-hmm. these islands are rebuilt. What are these people going to do? And so relief efforts, money-raising efforts to help these places is incredibly important. And that's so front of mind with my daughter, and I'm so proud of her for that, that that's what she thinks of first is the other people and the suffering that they have. Yeah, and people who had no, you, you could say, well, why would you live there in the first place? But it's going, it hits everybody. It's mm-hmm. one, it's like, it's not like weather is in one place and not others. It's everywhere. And it'll be us at some point. I mean, we got hit by, uh, what was the one that hit New York? Uh, Sandy. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of time until the next one. Katrina in New Orleans. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. this stuff happens. A tsunami that happened. You know, these things happen. You know what hit me when I was preparing my talks for uh, my students before? The words, they sound corny almost this much later, but they really, we are the world. We are the children. We are the ones to make a brighter day. I never, when I was a kid, you know, that song came out, like, We Are the World. I was like, I didn't really think much of it. I was like, a, you know, cool song, nice, you know, raise money for Africa and stuff like that. But it's really like, those words are really right on. Like, we are the world. We are helping ourselves. So, yeah, you, you bring that home for me. You know, there are a few things that are, we may have, all have different kinds of belief systems going on. But there are a few things that affect all of us and the environment affects all of us. So how do we make that better for not only ourselves? It's kind of intangible to think of future generations. If you don't have kids, I have kids. I think of it for them. I think of the grandchildren that I might have. But it's, it's all families, that family of man that share this planet that I think that that awareness that we need to be working together, not at cross purposes, in order to preserve that, there's an arrogance that goes against that, which hurts everybody. So when you say we have to work together and someone's politicizing things and polarizing, so some people are working against each other, that to you is like, it's the opposite of what is what we need to get through this. Well, I think that, again, it comes back to putting things in context, it is important to think of economic impact. It is important to think about jobs and people's livelihoods and all of that. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because in the same general time period that you hear about the coal industry suffering, which was suffering long before this, and fossil fuels are not the solution to anything. And so there's this, all this talk about how jobs are being eliminated in that area. There's many, many, many more jobs being eliminated in retail mm-hmm. <laughs> as a result of online purchasing. Robotics and factories and... Automation, that's correct. All of these things. So I think it's important to try to think of solutions in context where you have to also take into consideration the impact that it does have on people, that it does have on their livelihoods and all of that, and then reach reasonable solutions through informed dialogue and informed discussion and debate, not ideology that's based on nothing other than greed. A few minutes ago, you talked about not just knowing about this, but what we can do, how we can work together. And one of the big parts of the show is I invite people at their option to take on a personal challenge. And For people who haven't, you know this, but uh, for people who might be listening to the first episode, what I ask people, if if you want to, you don't have to, but if you do, it doesn't have to be something that fixes the world's problems overnight all by yourself. Because a lot of people feel like if it doesn't do everything, they don't do anything. But it has to be something that fits with the values of your values that makes a difference. And if you choose to do it, then it's something that, how do I put it? You can do it short term, but I hope that if you do it, that you'd think of maybe doing it something permanent, something that would like endure. Uh, would you be interested in taking on a personal challenge? Depends on what that personal challenge is. Well, it's, some people have one before they start, like they've always wanted to do something, but a lot of people, they haven't yet figured it out. They, they come in and we talk about it. And so, uh, I mean, you talked about working together. You talked about your son. You talked about your daughter. You talked about weather that's going on right now, or not weather, the hurricanes. So it seems to me like since those are the things that came up first, 
I wonder if there's things around there that have you ever thought about something that you've kind of wanted to do, but never really got around to or something like that? And by the way, just so I don't get corrected later by my son, uh-huh. when I mentioned this tsunami, tsunamis are caused by earthquakes uh-huh. and under the ocean. So it's not the environmental aspect, but it's things that damage land. You know, for instance, uh, one of my ongoing challenges and this is a challenge that I give myself literally every semester, is to find people to impart knowledge to the students so that we can all learn and know more and benefit from that knowledge. Because I think that the core foundation of everything is education and learning. And so that's a challenge I took on when I decided to take this job teaching it at Parsons was that, that it wasn't, oh, I've got this. I mean, you book guests doing your podcast. It's not easy booking 15 guests a semester, coordinating very busy people's schedules to get them to give you that time. And uh, that requires a lot of work, quite aside from all the research that I do for to prepare for those guests to come in to deliver that value to the students. So that's an ongoing challenge I have, which is to constantly try and educate and inform. And, you know, I think that that's education to me is where it all starts. There's other things, for instance, you know, Jake, my son said, just turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth. Mm -hmm. You know, people leave the water on and they brush their teeth and the water runs much longer than it needs to. You waste much more than you need to. And that's kind of a simple thing. Yeah. You know, just turn it off, you know. And uh, Do you? Yeah, I do. Okay. I do. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm conscientious about that. You know, that's just as of a couple years ago, becoming aware of it a few years ago. But it's, it's a simple thing that if everybody did it, would be a tremendous thing. Now, it's... It, you know, a lot of times I think it's really hard for people to get their head around the fact that small acts like that, like, you know, taking your own uh, shopping bag as opposed to taking a plastic bag that's lined with a paper bag every time you go to the grocery. My wife carries cloth bags to bring the stuff home. Uh, not totally, but she does that a lot. And that's a result of just a higher awareness of all the waste that is created. It's beyond awareness because it's activity. You can be aware and not act. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and there are things, uh, you know, you don't see styrofoam cups around uh, as much. And that's because awareness was heightened and people took action. So there are, I think, you know, it's hard for people to imagine what can I do that's going to have an impact? What difference does it make if I turn on and off the water and I'm brushing the teeth? actually would have a big impact because hopefully there's a multiplier effect. People become aware of these things mm-hmm. and incorporate these into the habits of what they have. You know, you don't need to stand in a shower for 10 minutes. You know, just there's there's simple things that if there's that multiplier effect, it becomes better for everybody. Yeah, I'm going to go even farther that it's not just, it, it, this is actually my blog post yesterday, is that the value of doing small things, I don't, people say little things add up to more. I won't argue with that, but I think there's a much bigger effect, which is that if you don't care about the little things, you don't even notice the big things. If you Once you care about the little things, then you notice the big things. And when you notice the big things and you've already acted, now you can act on the big things. And it's more like a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. And then people, after they make the little changes, then they make the big changes. And those are the ones that really count. Those add up. And every now and then you'll have someone who does a little thing and they're also a big decision maker at some multinational corporation and the little thing that they did about not throwing stuff away or something will lead to the whole company doing that. And I guess that's maybe the multiplier effect you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, we saw that, uh, we see that with smoking, you know, you can no longer smoke in the office buildings. You can't smoke in waiting rooms. You can't do all of that, which used to be a pollutant to everybody that was around. Yeah. The big thing for me is, uh, when I was a kid growing up, you could say, give me one for the road. Meaning, I'm about to drive. <laughs> yeah. Would you please give me some alcohol? <laughs> right. And that just doesn't fly anymore. And it's weird. I think people today, they'll say like, maybe they'll say like the meat, meat is like a big global warming thing, big pollutant. Uh, and so people say to go for meatless Mondays. 
it's a small thing and we can, it may have a multiplier effect, but I think if, if you could go back to back when drinking and driving was more accepted than today, I, it does happen, I guess, still today, but not, not like it was before. And it certainly not, doesn't have the public acceptance that it would. And no one would say, you know what? Let's not drink and drive on Mondays. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Go ahead. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> My point being that um, I think when people say to someone, just do this little thing. You don't say do a little thing when you think it's awesome, when you think it's going to, if I think something's going to make your life much better, like not drinking, driving. I don't say do a little bit of not drinking, driving. I say go for the whole thing because mm-hmm. you're going to like it. And I think there's a danger in saying do this little thing implies you don't want to do it. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the example of the drunk driving is that it was mothers against drunk driving, mad, that got, had tremendous effect on policy and raising public awareness. And this was literally mothers who, uh, and I don't know this for sure, whether they suffered a particular loss as a result of a drunk driver, uh, a dear friend of mine, his mother was killed by a drunk driver. And this was something that started as a grassroots effort that has had a tremendous national impact and changed the public perception that it is not cool. They came up with the designated driver idea and it's not so cool that one for the road, which, you know, looking back, it's like absurd. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from today's standards, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. At the time, I don't, I, I'm mad. Is it possible that people said it makes you more relaxed and somehow helps? I don't know. I wasn't there, but it's, it's really hard to imagine now. And I hope part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is I hope that sometime in the future, people would look at, I don't know, just one of the things you mentioned, going to the store and getting new bags. You, you just wouldn't, you, when I think of going to the store, I think, okay, I got to get a bag. Otherwise, how am I going to get the stuff home? And I hope that it becomes so automatic that what people now say is like difficult or hard that at a time it'll be as hard as not drinking and driving. So would you be interested in, in taking on something that you, it sounds like you already turn off the faucets, that that's something that you've already done, but are you interested in doing another something like that? Well, and as I said, my ongoing challenge every semester is finding people who have knowledge of value to impart to the students, which takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, but that's something I do. So I don't know what, I kind of feel every day is a challenge. <laughs> so I'm not exactly sure of a specific activity beyond the stuff that I'm doing that I'd want to take on, but I'll listen. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how did you feel? Are you glad that you did the, the turning off the water, the bringing the bags with you to the store? You said your wife does. I presume you do too. I, well, she tends to do more of the daily shopping than I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not going to take credit for doing things I don't do. Mm-hmm. You know, because she tends to do that more. Do we separate our garbage and recycling? And do I do that? Yeah, I do. So I think that it's, uh, and do I feel better? It's it's really not about feeling better. I can't say that it's increased my emotional sense of well-being to turn the water off. I just think, you know, this is a smart thing to do that there's benefit that is hopefully if enough people do this, there will be benefit to it, but it's nothing that I don't turn off the faucet and then smile. <laughs> you know, it's not like, wow, this is fun. Uh, but I just think that, you know, these are behaviors that as a society we ought to adopt because it will help the general well-being if it's done by enough people long enough. So that's, what, yeah, something that will have that effect that we, of what you just described. Oh, and by the way, one thing I, I, I made a decision early on strategically for this is if someone's already doing something, I want them to do something new. So if you're already doing something, it doesn't count. So that's why mm-hmm. you keep saying oh, the so teaching. We keep, we keep canceling out my efforts. Yeah, <laughs> not canceling them out, but I, I want people listening to this uh-huh. to hear someone's making a change that they also could make. I mean, some of the ones that I'll give examples of, of what other people have done for the show. Like, so- a bunch of people are doing things where they're eating less meat. Some are doing things. Now, where- by the way, I stopped eating meat 40 years ago. Ah, long time ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's significantly longer than I stopped in, in 1990. Actually, God, I'm getting old. I stopped eating red meat in 1969. So 
that's 48 years ago. Do you remember what, what was the last meat you ate? And it was probably, you know, I don't remember. It was probably right. a steak or something. So, and by the way, I have don't miss it at all. And I didn't stop for environmental reasons. Mm-hmm. It ends up that I think there's health benefits to it. And there are certainly with the methane that is produced by cows, there's environmental, if enough people did it, environmental benefits from it and so on. But I can't say that I started it because of that. But I actually just, once I stopped eating red meat, I actually felt better. And not that I felt bad before, but I felt better not doing it. And then science has begun to back that up. So that's, okay, so you can't stop eating meat. So some people are turning off the air conditioner more. I do, but that's something I do. Okay. You know, I don't think you need to keep an empty apartment air conditioned. You can deal with the discomfort for a few minutes when you come in, if it's particularly warm, Mm -hmm. as it comes back on again. So, Oh, well, this guy was not turning it on at all. Uh huh. For the summer, then some people are switching from driving. Driving. One guy's is not getting a car. He's moving to Europe, and he and his wife decide they were trying to decide should I get a car or not, or should we get a car or not? And they decided because of the podcast, they're going to not get a car. Like that's the decision. So see, I'm um, just ahead of my time. I don't have a car. Well, and, you're and, yeah. <laughs> and also, either take public transportation or ride sharing. Mm-hmm. So um, I walked here. Well, as you know, I think uh, I walk three miles to work every day. Oh, okay. And then what are some other things that people are doing? Uh, not getting bags you're already doing. Picking up trash. That's one that I do that a couple of people have picked up on, which is every day I pick up at least one piece of trash off the street and put it in a trash can. Oh, I thought you were collecting it. <laughs> well, uh, not yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and if there's a recycling bin around and it's recyclable, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, do, I'll choose that. And talk about awareness and changing, like, Yeah. Well, you know, it was funny thinking back when I was much younger, people just used to drop their papers and trash any place. Mm-hmm. And even when driving in a car. You just throw it out the window. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's, and looking back at that, it's like, what were you thinking that that was acceptable behavior? I mean, it's crazy. You know, I was, I recently rewatched the, uh, it's called the crying Indian public service announcement. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about with the, the Indian with the tear. Yeah. And there was a couple of versions of it and it's, you know, it's a heartfelt ad or public service announcement. It makes a lot of sense. And the amount of pollution and, and literally we have now is so much greater than it was then. Mm-hmm. I don't know any, anything resonates so far. I guess a lot of the things you're already doing. Yeah. I mean, I think from first of all, trying to stay informed which I try to do, mm-hmm. then having a son who was studying all of this stuff so that if <laughs> if the water was, Dad, why don't you turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth? You don't need to keep the water on, uh-huh. you know? And then when I would uh, leave the light on in a room and he goes, you com- coming back in? I said, well, you know, turning it on and off shortens life. He said, no, that's a myth. It doesn't shorten the lifespan of the light bulb. Mm-hmm. You know, so... All of these kinds of things, that's another thing to keep you in line is when family members are also aware and telling you things to do. That keeps you front of mind. That makes me think of something that might work is what if you just went to your son and asked him, he sees you all the time. Maybe he has a suggestion and you could do it. Yeah, I could ask him. Uh, He loves giving me suggestions. (laughs) So uh, as does my daughter. And uh Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that, wow, he's already doing everything well and perfectly. You know, I'm I'm not. But these more basic things we're talking about, frankly, I have been aware of them, have been trying to be mindful in making them habits like turning off the water. Same thing when I shave, do the same thing. Uh, I know you don't shave as often as I do. (laughs) Uh, today. <laughs> yeah, Melissa, well, your beard looks good on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, things like that have become habit, which weren't before. Yeah, so, I mean, it can go to the next level. For me, listeners know this, but, uh, you know, I took on one, which is to eat no food where I throw away packaging or to avoid it as much as possible, which led to my, I now take landfill garbage out once or twice a year. And which is like, probably more than a 90% reduction. And then that's also led to where I'm to not fly. 
to, to avoid flying. So I'm sure that I'll fly again sometime in my lifetime. But I'm in roughly 18 months since the last time that I flew because I chose not to do that. And that's an example for me of where long time ago it was not, you know, turning off the water when I was brushing my teeth. And then like they keep building and building and building. And then if, if once you get them a bunch of them at one level, then you go to the next. In, in my case, it's like you start being able to do things you couldn't do before. Well, there is another thing that I do, which is when I buy my lunch, mm-hmm. you know, and you get... If I get a sandwich that's that uh, you know it's wrapped, or a thing of soup or whatever, I don't take the bag and put everything in. Mm-hmm. I just carry that stuff. Yeah, you know it's kind of one less bag or two less bags. Isn't it weird when you see someone walking out of a supermarket and they're carrying like a bag of potato chips in a bag? Right. Like it doesn't. Anyway, but I want to see if we can come up with something that that you haven't been doing that you like that it, it would be a challenge. I'm thinking of the of the going to the sun and saying you'll find something with him, and uh, yeah, I'll certainly t- talk to Jake about that. Why not? So, could we make that your challenge is to is to negotiate <laughs> something with him? To talk to my son. <laughs> well, and find something from him that you can act on. Yeah. So that, so that next time when we talk on the podcast, assuming we do a second time, then. We'd start by saying, okay, so Jake gave you an idea. Yeah, well, he's a good guy to ask, a smart guy to ask. So that will be interesting. If nothing else, I can give a list of things that he suggested that could be done that I didn't do but uh, or that I incorporated one of them. So I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's, it's um, what's the word on your part? You're agreeing to do something that you don't know what it is yet. That's right. gumption or not gumption, that's, but that's like, life. Uh, yeah. And it's something I'm finding a bunch is that, a lot of people are doing this as a, like a family thing. Like first they're thinking about themselves and then it becomes their kids involved or they, they connect it with their children or they connect it with their parents. So that's not a rare thing in, in this podcast. I'm, I'm surprised that in retrospect, not that surprised. I shouldn't be surprised, but that's something that people connect it with their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you naturally right off the bat said, this is something you have, ki- you have children and maybe grandchildren one day. And this is something that you identify with them. So, you got to negotiate with him to figure out something yes. to, uh, and maybe we'll talk, maybe say, we'll talk again in a month. Would that work for you? Sure. Okay. So it would be something that would, it would be, it could be on a week or two week or three week or a month timescale that moves a needle, that something about your behavior, that your behavior reduces pollution or global warming or resource depletion, something like that. This is the first time someone's like, I'll do something. I don't know what it is yet. Yeah, I sort of feel that every morning when I get up. Uh, I'm going to do something. I don't know what it is yet. But. So, well, let's wrap up there. Is, it, is there anything I didn't think to ask that came up that's worth bringing up that, to, to before wrapping up? Uh, I mean, it seems well covered. You're the best judge of that in terms of getting what you think is good for your listeners. Yeah, I mean, I have to say with the leadership part, when we were talking about your experience and the people you've worked with and the perspective, I... I've talked to you a lot about, about these things before, but I picked up new things that I, I think really valuable. I try to make how to become more of a leader oneself, something access to leadership is something that I, I try to bring to the listeners. So I think that was there. And the environment part, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this turns out. It's, uh, I'm, now I'm very curious. So worked great for me. Great. Well, it was fun. Thank you very much. Thank nice you. job. Thanks. And we'll talk again here in about a month. Okay, doke. If not for Jeff, I'd think of fashion as being a less-than-genuine field. I guess I've seen Zoolander a few too many times. But he is the salt of the earth. A main purpose of this podcast, and I think for cultural change, is to reach and influence influential people. And Jeff shows how it's done, not making a big deal about it, just getting things done. He's in business for people, making a difference, and I wanted to bring that to this audience. He does the grunt work to make things happen. Through him, I also met Sally Singer at Vogue, who also became a guest on this podcast, so I recommend listening to that episode. The field of fashion is incredibly influential. I didn't realize how much until talking to them. And I hope you also see why from listening to these episodes. And more importantly, I hope that you learn to follow suit, use that influence, and influence similarly. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. 
value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.